Tom Talks, Three Powerful and Unique Teaching Methods Fueling Students' Passion for Learning. 41 at 25, Reassessing President George H.W. Bush with Professor Barbara Perry, Senior Fellow and Co-Chair of the Presidential Oral History Program, Professor Miller Center. Cultivating Wisdom and Well-Being for Personal and Professional Growth with Professor David Mick, School of Commerce Marketing. Game of Thrones comes to UVA with Associate Professor Lisa Woolfolk, Arts and Sciences, English. Okay, thank you, Jane, very much. Appreciate it. Um, it's a real honor for me to be here today and uh, to be invited to be part of this program. I've been teaching at UVA now for 15 years, and I continue to have a lot of pride to be part of this faculty, as I know you do, as uh, almost all of you here are alumni. Um, I thought we had 20 minutes, but now I was told 15, and the <laughs> typical professor, I've got probably too many slides. So I'm going to move through them somewhat quickly to kind of get to the, uh, I think, the really meatier stuff towards the end, and I'll show you my email so that if you'd like a copy of these slides, there's no reason to write anything down. I'll be more than glad to send you not only a copy of the slides, but a copy of the syllabus for this course, which I'll be talking about. So um, I earned my check from UVA primarily by teaching market research. I'm the primary market research professor over in the Commerce School. But about five years ago, I decided to uh, develop something a little different, something to reinvigorate some of my own interests and try to bring something new to the commerce students. And I developed this course called Cultivating Wisdom and Well-Being Among Commerce Students. And it's only for fourth-year students. Uh, in fact, it's in the spring as they're getting ready to graduate. So it's meant to be kind of a, a culminating course to bring them back 360 degrees about why they came here in the first place. So why did I ever do this, or how would you ever think a commerce professor would do it? Well, my undergraduate degree is actually in philosophy, which makes me a little different from some of my colleagues. And uh, but almost 10 years ago, I started doing some work on wisdom in terms of executives who are wise versus not wise. Uh, we'll t and I'll say a little bit more about what, the, what that wisdom is. And um, so I, I developed this course, as I said, about four or five years ago uh, to build on what I've been reading and what I've been studying uh, in wisdom uh, literature. So what is wisdom and what is its purpose? Well, I start from, uh, in order to have some foundation, I start from an Aristotelian perspective. Aristotle said the purpose of life and the word he used was eudaimonia, which gets spelled in several different ways and can be translated as happiness, but I tend to treat, treat it and translate it more as a concept of well-being or flourishing, which many other people do as well. Uh, Aristotle's answer to how do you have eudaimonia in life, his answer was wisdom. So, of course, that then begs the question, what is wisdom and how do you get there? But that's how I link those two concepts. The purpose of life is to flourish as well as a leader, as in your personal life, and having organizations that flourish as well. And from an Aristotelian perspective, the way to get there is through wisdom. Here's a couple of ways to think about it. It's a hypothetical construct, which means it's open to a lot of definitions and debates, and no one's going to agree completely on how to define it. 
but uh, it's the ability to recognize the essentials of situations we encounter in everyday life and to respond well and fittingly to those circumstances. Uh, and a little quippy way of thinking about it is wisdom is doing the right thing at the right time in the right manner for the right reasons. So it's not just about being smart. It's not just about having high intelligence, as we'll see in a moment. It's about how you use that knowledge. That's what really distinguishes wisdom. And it brings in some values as well and ethical issues just by the appearance of the word right. How important is wisdom? Well, Aristotle's teacher Plato even said in the Republic that first among the virtues found in the state, wisdom comes into view. Uh, and, more, and you can jump a, couple, a few centuries ahead, and we have the Dalai Lama saying wisdom is the foundation of all good qualities. And even today, uh, as, as there's some catch to this whole notion of wisdom and what's going on in academia, uh, the Templeton Foundation has given several million dollars to the University of Chicago uh, for uh, a multi-year program on defining and researching wisdom. If you want to go to their website, it's just wisdomresearch.org, and you'll be amazed at what they're doing up it. And I've had the good fortune of being invited up to Chicago to talk about some of my research. Why do we need wisdom today? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but very quickly, uh, well, we're, we got a lot of information and decisions we have to make in today's life, even more so than compared to decades and centuries ago. This complexity we all know, all of us who live in this world today, the speed with which things are coming at us, primarily because of technology, only invites us to try to be wiser. It's a lot of opportunity to be the opposite of wise, which Robert Sternberg would say is foolishness. Uh, there's a fallacy is often thought in social sciences now about multitasking as people try to do more than one thing at a time and often instead end up doing foolish things. Uh, we also live in a world where our influences are probably more far-reaching and that which influences us than ever before, again, largely due to technology, but also the globalization of business and so forth as companies affect societies abroad and vice versa. And this has only seemed to intensify uh, the issues of morals in everyday life, the judgments and decisions and behaviors in our own life, as well as leaders and organizations, so how we take care of ourselves, the health of our societies, the monies and priority we spent, parenting, social policies, and on and on. We need wisdom. So that's kind of the premise of the course. One of the leading theorists in wisdom in, in social sciences, the former president of the American Psychological Association, Robert Sternberg. He's got a fairly academic definition. He calls it the application of knowledge toward the attainment of a common good through a balance among intrapersonal, that means obviously within yourself, interpersonal between you and me, and extrapersonal having to do with the things that are beyond us, even including the, the environment, let's say, over the short and the long term. A key word there is the word balance. So it's not just about trade-offs of costs and benefits, but how do we balance sometimes competing and even contradictory sort of interests among stakeholders or things that we're, uh, uh, you know, do we hurry up and make a decision or can we wait and be a bit more patient? How do we balance these kinds of pressures? So it involves dialectical thinking, which tends to show up more in Eastern philosophy than Western. Uh, he says it's not necessarily a late adult development, which is good since I'm teaching and trying to guide 22-year-olds. Uh, there are aspects of wisdom I'll say more about in a moment that are definitely age-related, but some of it's not necessarily. It's relative to context, so you can be a really great parent but maybe not a good leader of an organization or vice versa. You could be a great professor and not good at something, not wise at something else. So it's not as if you're wise, you're wise in every context of life. And he argues it's larger than ethics. It's, it has to do with also knowing when you're facing an ethical situation and what kind of ethical theories or models or perspectives can you bring to bear. 
Another major thinker in this area is Paul Baltz, who just passed away a few years ago and had some connection to UVA. He was visiting our psych department periodically. He calls it a, a valued, outstanding expertise, so we see this knowledge coming in to deal with fundamental problems related to the meaning and conduct of life. And here's just a few of the things he's talked about among his many publications. Wisdom has to do with asking significant and difficult questions, including about excellence in life, recognizing the limits of knowledge and uncertainty uh, of life, developing and using listening uh, skills, valuation skills, and advising skills, and importantly, it's about synchronizing your knowledge, your values, and your action, putting all three together. That's what it means to be wise. Now, let me stop for a second. Wisdom's a huge concept. I've got 15, 20 minutes, and this is going so fast. It's like, how in the world can you do this? Well, we spend a whole semester, and we still get to the end and say, how in the world did we deal with wisdom in 14 weeks? But uh, it's an amazing literature that's out there. And... Um, um, hopefully I'm whetting your appetite a little bit about it. There's a lot of debate and discussion about what it is, how to measure it, how to study it. So I've been talking about wisdom. What is the other side of it if it leads to well-being or flourishing? Well, the one thing I'll mention here is just to kind of get past this point is that well-being or flourishing is multidimensional. We can talk about our health. We can talk about the economics in our personal life, whether we're flourishing or as a society, let's say. Uh, there's emotional well-being. How do we feel about the way we're getting along with people and the way we're moving through life? Our family has different issues of well-being economically as a society. Um, socially, politically, ecologically, spiritually. So the people that write about well-being point out there's a lot of different ways to think about it. You can flourish in different contexts or different dimensions and maybe not in others. But that, that's a lot there. But that's what we're, most of us, I think, are trying to achieve. We're trying to flourish in all those dimensions of our lives. So... The course that I've put together loses a book by Stephen Hall, which I'd highly recommend, published about four to five years ago, in which he, uh, he talks about eight pillars of wisdom. The book is Wisdom from Philosophy to Neuroscience. And these are the pillars. There's chapters on each of these. All right? um, and we see some of this coming up in the prior slides. So it does encompass moral reasoning about what's the ethical right thing or not to do in a particular situation. But he talks about the role of compassion, the role of humility, because a lot of times what we don't know far dwarfs what we know. Wise people tend to recognize that. Patience, dealing with uncertainty, resilience, which I'll say more about, and also mindfulness, which is a hot topic these days. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. So now I've gotten to the important slides and maybe something that if you'll have any questions later for me. What are the things that we're actually doing in the classroom? Well, these are some of the things that they're reading and that we will discuss. So there's a book on wellness I found, which I found very fascinating, called The 22 Non-Negotiable Laws of Wellness uh, by a man who's a cancer survivor and really had a very deep experience going through that and has written about what are the laws of wellness. And we try to connect that to some of the theory and discussion of wisdom. Here's another book that came out recently on wisdom by Barry Schwartz and Ken Sharp. Schwartz is a very well-known psychologist at Swarthmore in Philadelphia. And, and from an Aristotelian perspective, the right way to do the right thing. We also read part of Derek Bach's book, former president of Harvard, called The Politics of Happiness. What can government do to lead people to lead deeper, happy lives? I think he really is talking about flourishing. So he talks about policies, about how we, have, how we uh, deal with unemployment, how we deal with people that have chronic pain, people that have um, a variety of other kinds of problems, and are we really doing enough to help them have um, a more well-being life, if you will. So it's a fascinating book. 
Another one is an ethics book, How Good People Make Tough Choices. I discovered that one day in the, in the library. It's a fascinating book. And we read another very uh, well-known book in sociology called The Managed Heart by Arlie Hochschild, which is a really classic book about the service industry and what employees have to go through to service us every day when often they're not making much money. A lot of very controversy about you, and I'm talking about the McDonald's and otherwise. I have them read this so they know about this literature from sociology because they're more likely to be the leaders of these organizations and what are these frontline people going through, what kind of lives and what expectations are on them as well. How do you lead a wiser organization taking that into account? So some of the things we do is we watch a lot of videos on different TED Talks as well as readings and YouTube. But I, we also do Darden cases. So this, I'm, I'm, now I'm going to give you an example or two that have to do with what exactly we do in the classroom. So some of the classes, we do stuff that's very related to organizations and commerce. There are sometimes we will have classes where it has nothing to do with that, and we talk about personal life. So I'm going to give you two examples, one of each. In the Darden case, there's a, a Darden situation. There's a case uh, about uh, General Electric selling ultrasound equipment in India. And as their market share is growing, it's growing because the, out in the rural areas, the equipment is being used increasingly to sex type the fetus, and the abortion rate of female fetuses is skyrocketing because the culture favors male babies. And so we have a long talk about what is General Electric's role in this, what obligations do they have morally, what are the various options to the various different stakeholders, uh, does the corporate office, which was in London, as far as that part of the world, do they even know, are they aware what can be done? And there's a certain individual who is the head of India as far as sales of ultrasound equipment who is facing this directly in his career. What can he do? What does he need to do? How is he going to think through this? So the issues of compassion, patience, moral reasoning, some of those things we saw at the other slide are going to be coming into play as we re have read about those things and how can we apply them. How do we find a balance, to use Sternberg's metaphor again, to come up with hopefully a, a solution that will um, basically be as much win-win-win-win as possible, but there will have to be some, obviously, trade-offs as well. In terms of exercises, let me give you another example of what we do sometimes when we don't do commerce stuff, because I feel like I want to also touch them with respect to their personal lives. Most of you in this room are, uh, you know, obviously you're moving on in adulthood and you've been through a lot. And when we think about why we become wiser or how we become wiser in life, a lot of it's because of resilience. We think about all that we have been through and what you yourself have, and I too, have had to work through either in job situations, family situations, could be health or whatever, and you face a situation where you had to either rise up and get through it and learn or possibly be crushed by it. And this notion of resilience is important to how people become wiser as they grow in their lives, uh, we know. So even at 22 years old, I asked them to write an essay about some time that they've already faced in their life already where they've had to really think about how they're going to get through a tough time where they've been really challenged. At that age, it's not uncommon for them to talk about either an injury as an athlete in high school, many of them have had that, or maybe they've had a breakup of an interpersonal relationship that was very important to them, or maybe they didn't get the internship or the job they were hoping for, and they're still kind of trying to work through this. And I asked them to write an essay about this in which they think about and talk about uh, what they've learned from this, what lessons have they taken away that, that will be able to be carried forward in their life after they leave UBA. 
And by the way, when I have them do some of these exercises, they're not required to talk about it in class. I'm the only one that reads it. I ask some of them to share it in class, and some of them will, and I'll even share some of my own similar experiences. And they come away with this particular exercise, I think, in a very, uh, uh, I think, with newfound, even deeper lessons about the role of resilience, that one issue in wisdom, if you will. Okay? We also uh, do, how am I doing on time? Am I okay still? I'm all right? All right. So uh, I, I happen to be very fortunate to be on the board here at UVA of the Contemplative Sciences Center. I've had a long time interest in mindfulness and meditation. And so in Hall's book and in my own belief about this, I think you can't lead a wiser life if you can't learn to discipline your mind to be better at what you selectively attend to, or in the New Age word, it's mindfulness. And so I actually uh, take them on a day-long retreat to Yogaville, which is an hour south of here, which is an ashram, where they are, get to learn even more about yoga and about meditation. And I do some meditation with them in the classroom, sometime to begin or to end our wisdom class, so that I can get them to quiet a little bit and settle, and to become a little more familiar with their own mental tendencies and their habits, and to get them to realize that they can take that with them as another way to foment, hopefully, um, wisdom and grow or cultivate wisdom in their lives. And when they come back from that trip, and, and, and as those of you who may be familiar or not with Yogaville, it's, there's nothing religious about it. They, it's, it's a very eclectic kind of place, mostly trying to teach contemplative practices. But whenever I, I, they, we come back, I'll ask them, should I do this again? Be honest with me. Don't tell me what you think I want to hear. If we were going to do this course again next spring, would you put everybody on the bus like we just did and spend another day at Yogaville? And every one of them says, yes. Absolutely. This was an amazing experience. Okay. So I have a lot of fun with that too, but you have to be more mindful in order to be wise and on that wise journey path, if you will. And they really come away, I think, touched by that. And lastly, I'll mention to you is uh, a part of the course involves a capstone document, about five single-spaced pages. I call it a life envisionment document, where I ask them to contemplate what kind of lifestyle, work style, parent style, living style, spiritual style, what is it that you want? Where are you going? What can you put out? You will change. You will not always be that way. But as a document, you can think, what are the values, the virtues that are most central to you now that you don't want to lose sight of? Maybe you'll come back to this document in five years or ten years and ask yourself, are, are, you, are you still on that path, living and trying to achieve those virtues and those values in the way that you go about your life, whether it's as leader in business or in your personal life? So uh, I find that, and again, I'm the only one that reads these, and uh, it's amazing. Every one of them does something so different. I, I find myself almost in tears sometimes when I end up reading what it is, what their dreams are, and where they're going, what they've taken from their UV experience going forward, how they're going to be a positive influence in the world. So how much longer can we afford this wisdom thing? Well, I love this. Of course, you've probably seen this from T.S. Eliot. I think it's from the Four Cantos or somewhere else. Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? We keep producing knowledge, but we don't think about how we're using it and making the best of it. And if you want to look for another book, this is a fascinating fellow. He's a professor in the U.K. I've, uh, got, I, uh, I've emailed with him a few times. He's been talking about wisdom for years, and he's got a paperback called How Universities Can Help Create a Wiser World. And he's not using the word wiser there in some offhand way. He means tapped into this literature. He means the concept of wisdom, which he talks about. And in one of my other favorites here from Deepak Chopra, whether it applies to businesses out there in markets or in our own lives, it's no longer survival of the fittest, but survival of the wisest. 
Okay? If you're interested, please email me. I'd be glad to send you my slides, and I'll send you a copy of the syllabus where I have a lot of hot links to all these videos and readings on the web, and would be glad to send it to you. All right. Thank you so much. Yes. You all should know that whenever I get a microphone, I want to sing. You should also know that I can't sing at all, so this is probably for the best. Something about the sound of my own amplified voice. I don't know what that means about my personality. I'm not going to pursue that. Good afternoon. My name is Lisa Woolfork. I'm an associate professor of English at the University of Virginia. I've been here for 15 years. And I'm delighted and thankful for the Lifetime Learning and Alumni Association for inviting me to share these ideas with you about my course on A Game of Thrones. Can I just take a quick survey of people who know the Game of Thrones? Who watched the show, maybe read the books, maybe? Okay, great. So to you, I will not have to extend this apology that there's foul language in what I'm about to share with you, um, because you're fully aware. Um, but for the others, hopefully, um, I'll be able to kind of talk about why this is a useful thing to discuss at a university classroom. Thank you. A prop. Daenerys Targaryen walks into a Starbucks, where she places her customary order for her secret recipe beverage, the fire and blood. It's an extra hot black coffee with a splash of hot sauce topped off with cayenne pepper. Nothing is ever too hot for a Targaryen. She waits patiently but briefly because, of course, even on the most crowded of days, it never takes long for her drink to be called. The barista holds her cup and reads, Daenerys Stormborn of the House Targaryen, the first of her name, the unburnt, the queen of marine, the queen of the Andals and the Rhinar and the first men, Khaleesi of the great grass sea, breaker of shackles and mother of dragons. Your drink is ready. <laughs> the meme that I've pictured here in the scenario suggests the ways in which the Game of Thrones operates as what I'm calling a generative text. This, these memes harness the energy of Martin's fictional universe to create new fictions, to tell stories that illuminate an aspect of our daily lives. So this meme transforms something that we're pretty much familiar with, going to a Starbucks or a coffee shop, them calling your name out, maybe not correctly, but calling your name out to announce your drink. It changes that regular pedestrian act into an act of heraldry. And this is something that I think is worth kind of considering. And it talks about something important about the Game of Thrones, which is, as I perceive it, um, it's thought-provoking and it provides a lot of questions. Is Daenerys Targaryen really the mother of dragons? Or will the dragons usurp her in the end? Is she truly a liberator? What about the people she has sacrificed on the course to their freedom? 
or is she making different shackles for them in exchange? Perhaps the thought of, a da- of Daenerys Targaryen in a Starbucks, however, is a less thoughtful response, maybe more visceral, one along the lines of, oh shit, she has dragons, run. My claims today are based on the idea that Game of Thrones is a generative text, that it's a, in addition, it's a visual and textual artifact. It breaks boundaries, forges connection, and inspires, and I believe requires, active reading. So it makes me ask, why do we study the Game of Thrones in an academic context? What aspects of the book or television series are best illuminated through careful scholarly inquiry? What happens when casual observation and recreational consumption are replaced by the rigorous intellectual labor of the University of Virginia classroom? For me, I like to think about the ways and push students to consider the way that boundaries are broken through the series. Um, the mode, what is, what is Game of Thrones? When you think about what is it, how do you summarize it to describe to a person? I think that it combines the family drama of the hit series Empire, the chaos of The Walking Dead, the conspiratorial camaraderie of Breaking Bad, the angst of Mad Men, and all of this is generated from a book first published in 1996. It also forges connections between readers, viewers, fans, artists, consumers, and producers. In a word, Game of Thrones and HBO's adaptation of it is not just a book series or an unprecedentedly popular television series on a premium network. No, it is more than that. It is a phenomenon, a textual and visual cultural artifact that serves as the basis for further consideration. So in what follows in the next few slides, I want to explore a few aspects of that phenomenon. And to do that, I'm going to use memes. Memes are these little user-generated codes, usually based in photographs. And I read those as a certain type of argument, that it helps to kind of crystallize important meaning and values about aspects of the series. So we can get started. For the audio, how can you tell if someone has read the books before they've watched the TV show? Oh, don't worry. They'll tell you. They'll fucking tell you. Um, as a generative text, I believe that this, the Game of Thrones has a high level of depth and complexity. It combines so much so that this creates a captivating context. Viewers are drawn in by the evocative performances, rich settings, lush costumes, seductive story streams, and the bloody battles, just to name a few of the most powerful aspects of the show. But readers, I believe book readers, have an additional layer of meaning that are available to them that aren't available to those who just watch it regularly. So there's many people who are familiar with the books for the last 19 years. They have available to them a type of intricacy about the interplay between the textual representation and its television adaptation. And I believe that it is this tension that makes for a robust fan culture, including many of the third-party interpretations and interventions in the Game of Thrones universe. Now, is there really a battle between book readers and TV watchers? I don't think so. I think that both really value 
close reading. And that's the thing that holds them together. That's what bridges the two worlds. That the visual people who privilege the show and the textual people who privilege the novels, both of them share in common the importance of reading carefully and keeping track of what's happened. And I also believe that close reading is the heart of literary analysis. And that's what we teach here at the University of Virginia. As I just said, close reading is the heart of literary analysis. It is the basis from which scholars make their assessments and interventions in the larger field. Martin's work sustains this type of robust critique. And if you look at these books, it looks, these are the, first, the, the current five books that are available um, to be, and the last one is the hardcover because it's more recent. The tabs. This, is, this looks like something you would do like in a literary class or a law text when you're you know, making sure to make notes of where things come. And I suggest, if you look at these tabs, it suggests the ways in which careful attention to detail yields large cumulative results. It's how the best students read. They identify narrative strands. They document significant insistence aspects of the work. Now, the tabs in this case, each tab marks a moment when a character dies. And notice that there are a lot of tabs. The image reveals a preponderance of death in Martin's fictional universe, which in turn serves as a basis for a variety of interpretations and reader expectations best explored, I believe, in a university classroom. This is active reading in a colorful and careful form. Active reading also occurs thematically, allowing us to ask hard questions of the text and its adaptation. This meme is a mashup of the, I'm not sure if you all have heard of this, the most interesting man in the world. It's the Dos Equis, um, he has his stay thirsty, my friends tagline. The culture, the cleverness of the Dos Equis ad campaign dovetails here neatly, I believe, into a critique of the representation of Khal Drogo, a warrior king who was transformed from conquering rapist into loving husband. Now the questions here abound about rape culture, colonialism, the shifting definitions of barbarism, the trafficking of women to advance culture, and the consequences of narrative shortcuts and narrative compression. Active reading of Martin's generative text make these conversations possible. And we spend a lot of time in class talking about the representation of rape and violence and in what ways this might be used as a narrative exposition versus prurience versus what this larger gender critique might mean. This image is a montage of reaction videos to the Red Wedding, which, to cue the quickest recap ever, is a momentous and shocking occasion. These images were captured by someone who had already read the books and knew what was coming. This image suggests the ways that the work straddles the gap between active and passive viewers. Those who knew of the scandalous event from reading the books were transformed from consumers of a fiction into a producer of their own version of that fiction. And this is important because these photographs reveal the interplay of the books and their television adaptation while stressing the consequence of active reading and viewing. And so this idea that you could say, well, I know what's coming, and so I was really shocked by it in the novel, and so I want to watch 
this person and see if she or he was just as shocked as I was. And so you record that or you take photographs. And I remember like reading interviews with Martin and he said when he wrote that section, he wrote the entire book. And then he went back to write the red wedding scene because it was so difficult. So it's definitely a very emotional and emotive type of moment. So to conclude, um, Game of Thrones is a phenomenon. There are multiple layers of investment from readers and viewers and viewers who become readers, readers who become viewers, who become bloggers or recappers, fan fiction authors, graphic novelists, game designers, and editors of scholarly editions. All of those folks are operating to construct a better understanding of the Game of Thrones. As I've said, Game of Thrones is a generative text, one that crosses the boundaries between genres, between textual and visual interpretations, between readers and viewers, between consumers and producers, and the University of Virginia's classroom is a vibrant forum in which to explore this idea, to research, to ask questions that challenge the text, that challenge its visual adaptation, that challenge our culture, and ultimately help us to challenge ourselves. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Jane, and everyone who put all these wonderful talks together, and to my colleagues, I've already learned a lot and wish I could sign up for the courses. I'm Barbara Perry, and uh, as Jane said, I'm a professor uh, at the Miller Center here. How many of you know of the Miller Center? Good. I'll give you some more information as we end today. Um, welcome back to Mr. Jefferson's University. I, too, am an alum, having done my Ph.D. here uh, with Henry Abraham in the government department. Do we have any government foreign affairs majors here? Okay, one or so. Good. Um, so I came to the Miller Center five years ago after teaching for 21 years at Sweetbriar College. May she rest in peace, it seems, I'm sad to say. Um, but I'm delighted to be here and back on the grounds and doing a job that I absolutely love. In fact, I just flew in uh, late yesterday from uh, spending an entire day up in the outback of New Hampshire with Andy Card, who was George W. Bush's chief of staff, for six years uh, at the White House and also worked in the Bush 41 administration and in the Reagan administration. And this is part and parcel of what we do at the Miller Center in terms of our oral history. So we're almost finished with the Bush 43 oral history. Uh, re we released his father's project in October of 2011. Uh, and coming up, uh, we have the Ted Kennedy oral history that is to come out this uh, September in Washington. And this past November, we released the Bill Clinton project. So we're very busy in this area. Uh, I decided to go back and, and investigate the Bush 41 presidency, not only because this was the first project that I worked on when I came to the Miller Center five years ago, um, but also because it's, it's, for some of us, it's hard to believe, but a quarter century has passed since he was president. And nearly all presidents uh, gain in popularity once they leave office. Um, in fact, I just read in the New York Times yesterday that uh, George W. Bush, Bush 43 as we call him, uh, has for the first time broken through over 50% approval rating for the first 
first time in 10 years. Uh, so the longer presidents are out of office, usually the higher esteem they generate among the American people. But what's unusual about his dad is that his popularity rose by 22 points between the time he went into his reelection campaign and then the actual poll before the election campaign in, in 1992, in which he lost to Bill Clinton, and the time that was taken, a poll right before he left office. So in the span of about eight weeks, he gained 22 points and was at about 60, 50-60% approval rating as he left office. And my question about that is, why would that happen? He had just been, uh, not, if not denounced, certainly not elected to a second term, and yet he left office with this wave of popularity following him. And I think part of it was a little bit of buyer's remorse, perhaps, as people look back and thought, ooh, uh, we've just voted against this person. He's been shipped packing back to Texas. And, and yet, if you look at this resume, he had the absolute perfect resume, uh, perhaps of any president to come into office, starting with his education, the fact that he was a genuine World War II hero, uh, a very successful businessman uh, in the oil industry in Texas, uh, all the way through his political career from, and I didn't even include the local politics in which he was involved in Texas, uh, but notice all of the different offices that he held, all the way up to being vice president for eight years under Ronald Reagan. So I think that people particularly now even look back and say, what a statesman, and to go to David's point, um, for someone who sat on the throne uh, at the White House to join our two con uh, concepts together, but he certainly was a man of wisdom uh, based on uh, all of the, the jobs and experience and knowledge that he had. But he also had this great sense of humor, and part of the experience that he had, which really helped him as the first Gulf War uh, came into being, is that he was, as vice president, often shipped abroad uh, to meet with foreign leaders um, when heads of state died. And so he came up with this quip, you die, I fly. Uh, and Barbara Bush, of course, loved this comment um, because she has quite the sense of humor as well. But she also said that when it then came to dealing with foreign policy in the Oval Office himself, once he was elected in his own right, that he knew all these leaders from around the world. Because every time he'd go to a funeral, he would meet the new leader, the head of state or the head of government, or both. And so it was very helpful to him. Um, now, his rise to the White House in his own right, um, in part, we think, came about because of his famous speech at the uh, 1988 Republican Convention, Read My Lips, No New Taxes, or Take Off on the Clint Eastwood Line. Um, but speaking of Clint Eastwood, we also realized in our oral history from James Baker, whom we interviewed for this project, that he said, we, and sometimes we forget this, when August came around and the conventions were over, Bush was actually running behind Dukakis by 17 points in the, in the polls. And so they actually started saying before the convention, should we do something to really shake this race up? And Clint Eastwood was the mayor of Carmel, California. He's a politician. Maybe we should actually pick him to be the vice presidential candidate. So that was one of the favorite of our discoveries. Obviously, we have many more serious than that. But of course, he made up the difference between himself and Dukakis in the polls uh, by August. And Dukakis did not help himself by, you might recall him, 
riding around in the tank to look at, like he was strong on foreign policy, but some said it looked a little bit like Snoopy when Snoopy would sit on his doghouse with his, with his helmet and say, I am you know, flying the sop with camel and I'm, I'm a World War I flying ace. Um, that was just an unfortunate photo op um, that came about. And then the, the, not only the Bush campaign, but an independent um, but pro-Bush organization began running these ads that showed Michael Dukakis um, and what he had done as governor of uh, Massachusetts, which is to have furloughs from prison. And one of these men, Willie Horton, on a furlough from prison, um, had raped and murdered um, a victim. And so this, of course, was used against him. As it turned out, Bush went on to a, an electoral vote landslide of 426 to 111 that year. Did any of you get to see the, the Berlin Wall here on grounds? Oh, isn't it just amazing? Um, so I was taking a, a cousin of mine around last year. Her daughter was looking at UVA, and we came upon it not long after it had been erected. And so if you'll see my photo here, you can actually see some of the buildings of the Jeffersonian style in the background, which I think is a really interesting symbol. Um, but look at all that was accomplished on the Bush watch. Now, I'm not saying that he was responsible for all of these things. Obviously, presidents before him had led us to the end of the Cold War. But if you just think of that, and those of you who are my age and older can probably remember that when we were growing up, we thought the Cold War might never end. And in fact, it might end up in a hot war that uh, we were doing duck and cover exercises in grade school. So that very fact alone, and the but the fact that Bush handled it so well, uh, and then the, nor the taking out of Manuel Noriega in Panama, then his Middle East victory in Gulf War One um, meant that his approval rating shot up to 89%, and he appeared at that time early in his term to be a shoe-in for re-election. Um, we interviewed Dick Cheney um, for the Bush 41 Project, and last year at this time, in fact this very week, I was spending a week in Jackson Hole with our interview team, uh, going to Dick Cheney's house every day and interviewing him for about seven hours every morning for five days. So we ended up with 25 hours of interviews, which I guarantee you will be quite interesting when those are released for the Bush 43 Project. But in the Bush 41 Project, Dick Cheney, who was George H.W. Bush's uh, defense secretary, said you just couldn't have had a better commander-in-chief for the Gulf War. Because remember, it required to push back against Saddam Hussein, who had invaded Kuwait in, in 1991. It, it required a worldwide coalition of the willing. And George Bush was able to do that by literally calling heads of state and heads of government on the phone and getting them to join in. Um, at home, I think people think probably not as much about George Bush, not that they don't think that they think poorly of him, but they just don't probably consider his domestic policies. But again, if you look at uh, the list of the Clean Air Act amendments and the um, Americans with Disabilities Act, which he signed in the law, and the 1991 Civil Rights Act, that's a pretty good record. Um, Fred McClure, who's now the head of the Bush 41 Library in Texas, in our interviews with him, said the only problem was that because Bush reneged on his no new taxes pledge, and he did so in order to get a budget passed with the Democrats in the, in the Senate and the House, he said we never really got over that. That was a that was perhaps something that needed to be done. Perhaps it was a wise decision to go to David's point. But um, Bush never really recovered from that. And you add to that a recession that was really on track uh, at the end of what turned out to be his only term. And then he just didn't have a very good campaign in 1992. So I call it hell to the chief rather than hail. <laughs> you also might remember at one of the uh, debates, he looked at his watch very famously, which none of you are doing, so I'm 
Thank you for that. Um, so he looked at his watch, and the Democrats said, oh, it's time for him to go. Like he looked like he wasn't paying attention. It looked like he was bored. It turns out, we found out in the oral history, that when they did the debate prep and they did the run-through, and Carol Simpson was the debate moderator, and Ross Perot, who ran as an independent candidate, was known to go on. And so there was supposed to be a limit on the answers to the questions. And George Bush, the president, said to Carol Simpson, well, I hope you keep time. You know, I hope you'll cut people off, kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Ross Perot. And so Ross Perot was going on and on with his conversation. And so we found out from the oral history that the president was kind of like, cut our, you know, cut him off. And that's how it got interpreted. No doubt that hurt him. He had also been uh, diagnosed with Graves' disease, uh, which is a thyroid condition, and he did not have the energy that people had seen him with prior to that. Uh, And certainly Ross Perot hurt him as well. And so I put there at the bottom of the picture on the right of the screen the actual popular vote. So Bill Clinton did not by any means get a majority, 43% to the president's 37.5%, but Ross Perot got almost 19% of the popular vote, though he didn't win one state. So he didn't win one electoral vote. Bush's legacy, we'll finish up here with that, as I think so important for us to contemplate again a quarter century after he was president. But on that very issue that probably cost him the election, both among Democrats who might have leaned towards him and certainly conservative Reagan Republicans, the tax issue, last year at this time, he was awarded the Profile and Courage Award by the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation because he used his courage and his wisdom to work to get a balanced budget with the other party in Congress while he was president. And you can see here the famous historian David McCulloch says, you know, we may not see the likes of him again. We are so partisan right now and we are so polarized that the sort of person who has that wisdom, who has that kind of heroic background, um, who cannot, doesn't demagogue a lot and can get along with people. And when he doesn't, he doesn't make them an enemy. He doesn't treat them like an enemy. Um, I also think the concept of legacy is important as well because at that uh, event, President Kennedy's grandson, Jack Slosberg, gave the award to President uh, Bush's, Bush 41's granddaughter, who is called Lauren, and she re- married Ralph Lauren's son, so she is Lauren Lauren now. <laughs> so thank you for being here today and for your attention. We look forward to your questions and comments, and there is a book on Bush 41 that we have here, and you can come up and look at it if you wish, and we hope that you'll also look at a documentary by fellow alum Mary Kate Carey called 41 on 41. Um, She graduated from here in 1985 and served as a speechwriter for Bush, and it's an excellent, excellent program. So thank you again. And if if you just raise your hand when you have a question, if you have a question, we'll bring the mic to you. I have a Game of Thrones question. There was a, uh, a dust-up last week or so about the uh, violence against women and whether a, a rape scene was overdone. Mm-hmm. And putting aside whether you agree with that or not, one of the explanations for why the, this particular person thought it was overdone is it wasn't in the book. And therefore, it was you know, gratuitous. Uh, how do you feel about that? I mean, is it fair, not just on this particular scene, but is it fair to criticize something you don't like about the 
the, the show by saying it wasn't in Martin's book? Right. Or is the medium so different that they're going to be Great. Thank you so much for the question. Let me make sure I can repeat it back correctly so they can record it. You're asking, is it fair to criticize the HBO ad adaptation for not consistently adhering to what was laid out originally in Martin's novels? I think, like baseball, literary criticism is not fair, and cultural criticism is not fair either. Um, it seems to me that... In, I think particularly as we move to season five, seasons one, two, and three tracked very well, I believe, to what was going on in the novels. Even though they made a lot of shortcuts, there, we talk about there's certain scenes in like chapter four, chapter five that we look at very closely in class. And then when they screen it to watch it, they're like, oh my gosh, that's totally different. Why would they do that? And we talk about what does that mean that they do that? What does it also mean if you don't know that this is how it was in the novel and you don't have that information available to you? What does it mean that you are drawing all your information based solely on the television show? That's why I believe a hybrid approach is so much better than just just the books or just the television show, doing them both together. That's a lot of time. It takes about 40 hours to read one of the Game of Thrones novels. And so some people might not have all that time. For me, I feel as though seasons one, two, and three tracked well with the books. But as we moved to four, and especially with five, and they've also been renewed for six and seven, and I, I did an event at the Smithsonian with one of the production designers for Game of Thrones, and she had the script for season six in her bag. And it was all that I could do not to mug this poor woman in the parking lot um, to find out what they were going to do, because that's totally ahead of the novels, right? And so the analogy that I've used since the beginning of teaching the course was, imagine the book and the television series on parallel tracks. They're heading in the same direction, but there's going to be a distance, some space between those two parallel tracks. By the time we get to season four and season five, it's like two monorails. They're heading in two divergent directions. The ambitions are totally different. And HBO is producing a product for television. And I don't think they have um, an obligation necessarily to be solely an adaptation. They're their own new thing. And as such, Sansa's going to be Sansa and not Jane Poole. You know, that things are going to be totally different. One thing I will add really quickly, and I think that my position on this might be different than the predominant position, I thought that that representation of that last episode, and I had, I've had students who were like, I've heard about it and I can't even watch it, and they know what's coming because we talked about this. And they said, for me, the big difference in Daenerys Targaryen's rape experience in season one and Sansa's experience in season five is that there was never any doubt that what you were watching was a very bad thing. In season one, it's not seen as a very bad thing. It's seen as, oh, it's kind of awkward and maybe a little unfortunate, but, you know, that's, what, that's how it was back then in a land that never existed because it's totally fiction. Um, you know, but for this one, there's no excuse. If you are watching this, you are not meant to get any sexual pleasure or stimulation from it. You are meant to be outraged because what is happening is unequivocally bad. And to me, I thought that was an achievement. So thank you for the question. I hope that was useful. Uh, it's a question 
is it Professor Perry or? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was good to see a recap of uh, 41's highlights. Um, one of his most enduring legacies has been the nomination of Chief Justice Thomas. And I wondered, I read a book recently, and I regrettably can't remember the, t- the title, but in your research, do you have any thoughts on uh, the legitimacy, the way he was nominated, and particularly the manner it was rushed um, with Congress out of session the weekend before with the scandal and Anita Hill? I just wonder... You know, you've obviously know way more than I've forgotten, so I'd like to get your thoughts. <laughs> uh, well, by chance, that was the chapter that I contributed to oh this book on 41, which was on the know. Thomas and the Souter nomination. So thank you for asking. I did not set this question I up. I just know. want you to know. I didn't. I've never seen you before. Um, but first of all, I think um, Justice Thomas would be pleased that you promoted him to chief. Uh, because it's, of course, um, Bush 43 who named the current chief, John Roberts. Um, But the Clarence Thomas, uh, clearly that nomination was an anomaly in a host of ways uh, because of all the controversy surrounding it, because you had people on the Senate Judiciary Committee including Senator Edward Kennedy, uh, who had been accused of sexual misbehavior. Mm -hmm. Somehow we've got a theme going here. But in any event, uh, he was not able to ask questions of then Judge Thomas. Um, So, in fact, Bush was caught in a difficult position. The dissertation I did here um, with Professor Abraham in the 80s was on judicial appointments, and it was on religion, race, and gender in appointments. And this was a few years before the Thomas nomination, but the one racially oriented nomination we'd had was Thurgood Marshall. So when Thurgood Marshall left that position, he retired due to ill health um, as Justice Brennan within back-to-back years in the early 90s during the Bush administration. George Bush felt the need to place an African-American in that seat. And this goes all the way, this concept goes all the way back to George Washington and geographic seats on the court. So what, this was not some modern 20th century you know, racially or gender-oriented um, nomination. It was a fact that there was this seat that had been created for Thurgood Marshall as the African-American seat, much as Sandra Day O'Connor established through Ronald Reagan the gender seat. There had been Catholic seats and Jewish seats on the court uh, throughout the the 20s, um, the 20th century, and even back into the 19th century. So the way we end, and I wrote this, co-wrote this article with Professor Abraham, this chapter, is that we said the Souter and Thomas nominations, and it's important, I think, to put them both together because those are the two nominations he made to the court, that as they carry on, and it's important, I think, that you mentioned the legacy of Clarence Thomas and of uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush, the legacy of those two nominations, Souter and Thomas, those two men ended up not representing George H.W. Bush's own politics and ideology because he was an, an, what we now would call an old-fashioned Northeast moderate Republican And those have almost vanished from the Republican Party. And so Clarence Thomas ended up more conservative and more Reagan-like in his approach to jurisprudence than the appointing president. And David Souter, also a moderate Republican from New England, from New Hampshire, um, ended up being more liberal than George H.W. Bush. 
This happens to presidents, but scholars have studied how the appointments of presidents work out over the years, and they have found that about 75% of the time, the justices hold to the ideology of their appointing president. And when they change, it's usually because they outlast the president by a number of years, uh, or they are they are moved by the times in which they live and the issues that come to them, or sometimes they are pushed into a different area by their colleagues on the court. And some people think that Justice Brennan, the liberal lion of the court, uh, actually influenced uh, Justice Souter once he came to the court and put him in a, in a more uh, liberal position. Great question. Thank you. Uh, thank you to all three. Uh, I have a question about wisdom, and I guess the fact that the first President Bush was not reelected, um, and that and that you know you put up his resume and his statesmanship and all the rest of it, and his son was reelected in a slightly different resume and experience. But I wonder, in your class, when you talk about wisdom, is it wisdom of a, a personal nature, or do you? It seems to me we have less wisdom in public life than we would have historically. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on the, um, the short-term nature of politics and corporations and do we have the patience to let people develop wisdom or uh, just if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I think that uh, I, I primarily am trying to teach at the level of the individual and I, I would hope that it, it's a concept that applies to whether you're an executive or a politician or not. I mean... Sometimes, I mean, in, in Robert Sternberg's writing, he likes to talk about Clinton because most people know he's a brilliant individual intellect, but we all know he did some, one particular, but if not other, very foolish things while he was in office that has uh, tarnished his legacy and probably will perhaps forevermore. Um, so, which kind of points to the fact that wisdom is context relative. You can be very wise in some aspects of life and not conducting yourself very wisely in some others. Um, um, you know, we, I, I do in the class try to, to with commerce students, uh, I do make sure that they've been exposed to some ideas that are um, not as rampant ideology of, of what we see in business in the United States. I let them be um, uh, exposed to some of the dilemmas about um, the kind of business that we see occasionally here where it's turned into oligopolistic markets where there's only a few players and um, some of the difficulties that that has caused. We talk sometimes about the money that has infiltrated Washington through corporations and has affected lobbying and whether or not um, that's necessarily in the country's best interest and some of that. So in that way, I'm trying to grow their wisdom to step back and not to uh, change any of their aspirations to join businesses and organizations and be good leaders, but to realize that uh, it's, a, it's a complex world out there, and they have a chance to think these things more deeply and perhaps have some positive influences in, in changes in policies, uh, practices, or whatever that will improve well-being rather than make it worse, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure if completely answered your question, but uh, it's, uh, you know, what I tell them too is, and this, I think it's true in general of an education, is that I tell them by the end of the class we will have asked more questions and we're going to come up with answers, and it sounds like a cliche, 
But wisdom is a very complex thing, but I just want them to think about it. What does it mean to be wise? Not just smart, not just successful, but what does it mean to be wise? And if that sounds like it's something you aspire to, then here are some of the pillars of wisdom, some of the practices that might help you along that path. And uh, that's kind of what my goal is. And uh, fortunately, they seem to have really uh, shined up to it. Very, I'm very fortunate to have UVA students. I, I might say as a last thing, I, I, what I'm very grateful for here at UVA is that I, I'm not sure if I was teaching at Texas A&M or at uh, UCLA or whatever, I would have quite the support that I've had here because I find that what I'm trying to do, I think, is also very concordant with uh, Jefferson, some of his ideology about the role of knowledge and lifting people up and asking difficult questions and dealing with difficult issues. And I think our students come to UVA exactly for that reason. I, I, I encourage them to never forget why they came here. This is a question for Professor Perry. Uh, you, you alluded to it briefly, but in terms of the fall of communism and the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, how much of a role do you think that uh, Bush and Reagan had in that uh, specifically, and how much of it was you know, events unfolding in those regions on their own? Mm -hmm. And uh, do you think they get enough credit for the role that they did have in that process there? Uh, yeah, so I, certainly, even as Marx himself knew about the, the role of history and, and the dialectic <laughs> that would happen in history, and I think you can make the case that communism was was coming to the end of its usefulness as in the minds of the leaders of those countries and certainly the people. Um, I, I go all the way back to, to Truman uh, and the Truman Doctrine and the fact that our approach to the Cold War, some can disagree or agree with it, but the fact that presidents of both parties, uh, in some ways that's why we had more agreement in some ways on certainly our foreign policy because for most people, there was a common thread of anti-communism. Now, we could get into the 50s and the McCarthy era and all of that, but just to say for the, the basic foreign policy, I think we want to give Republicans and Democrats in the presidency uh, a, a good deal of credit for that. And the, you know, the meaning of the American people to, to give their lives in service to the country, whether it was in military service, in Korea, uh, in Vietnam, or the Peace Corps, uh, part and parcel of Cold War theories and philosophies and, and foreign policy. Um, clearly, Reagan had a particular view of communism coming from his conservative ideology, and so I think he's given the most credit um, from the 1980s, uh, and that's why I said we can't just look at the list of things that happened under George Bush 41 and say, oh, he's responsible for the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Soviet uh, state and therefore the fall of the Iron Curtain. But he not only carried on with the Reagan policies while beginning to turn from them as a more moderate Republican to begin to reach out, for example, to Gorbachev, as Reagan had done as well. But I think George Bush was especially good at that. And what he was especially good at was doing the right thing. So back to, I'm looking at David's uh, definition here of wisdom, doing the right thing at the right time in the right manner for the right reasons. And one very specific example of that for George H.W. Bush was the fall of the Berlin Wall. And many of his advisors were saying, get out and, and in effect, dance on the wall. You know, do the touchdown dance. That this is what we did, and and take advantage of this, and it'll help you get reelected. And George Bush was raised in that 
prep school, uh, northeast, don't draw attention to yourself. I, yes, it, well, okay, wasp, yes. And his mother said, don't draw attention to yourself. If you, and remember, he was a superb college baseball player. He was captain of the Yale team and went to the World Series uh, during his captaincy of the Yale baseball team. Um, after World War II and after being, again, a genuine hero of World War II. Um, and his mother said, do not, from the time he was a little boy, do not draw attention to yourself. And he even had the nickname Have Half, because if he got something, he'd offer half to someone else. So that was very much against his concept, I think, of wisdom and his own personality and how he dealt with the world. And that... I think came back to haunt him in running for re-election, but it is all the more reason to give him credit that he should have had for how he handled. And then went on in the first post-Cold War war to win the Gulf War and to push Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, but notice the difference in the two, the father and son, about how they handled Iraq. And George Bush thought, and his advisors, Brent Scowcroft, Colin Powell, Dick Cheney thought, what happens if we take that guy out? What's going to happen to Iran? What's going to happen to that area of the Middle East? And so George Bush I did not go into Baghdad and take out Saddam Hussein. George W. Bush, Bush 43, did. There's over here. Get your exercise today. You, you know, I might add that some of you may be aware there's a lot of debate about who or what are the leading qualities uh, for some of the top CEOs in, in, in the country and around the world. And some of it is suggested that it's, it's, it's the people that tend to be more humble, that mm -hmm. don't call attention to themselves, that do mm -hmm. the right thing behind the scenes, building the right team and honoring who works with them, those kinds of things. We see more often that the flamboyant, out there, draw attention to themselves types of CEOs, sometimes they can be very successful. Seems like not for a long, long time, not an enduringly uh, kind of a way. You don't, you don't hear, for example, very much about the fellow that runs John Deere Corporation. But he's been there a long time, and he's widely revered as being one of the leading executives among major companies in the United States. So that's just an example to share, talking about yeah. humility. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Professor Mick, you, um, the, the skills, the awareness, the information that you're bringing to your students in class would obviously be beneficial for every single student on campus, particularly you know, in light of, of you know, the kind of life stress that... that the kids we're raising these days face. Um, you also mentioned, I think, that you were involved with the Center of Contemplative Studies. I'm just wondering if you know whether there are movements afoot at the university through residential life, et cetera, to bring some of, again, the things that you're doing in your classroom to the wider student body. Uh, I've been contemplating trying to offer this course uh, to also the freshmen as they're first coming in. It seems like trying to get the ones that are first stepping on campus as a way to think about these things, and then the ones at the end is kind of a, a capstone. Um, but uh, uh, a lot of my teaching commitments are in another area, partly because we have to fulfill certain needs there. But uh, um, uh, as part of the Contemplative Sciences Center, there's a lot of, you know, th that whole thing is growing to where we're going to be um, hopefully offering more um, practices, opportunities, exercises, and courses uh, for our UVA students to um, 
uh, to be inspired uh, to the role of reflection and contemplation and these practices such as yoga and meditation and, and other forms. Some of it is poetry and art or, or can be other even discussions about prayer without getting into necessarily a religious perspective, but what do these things do for us as human beings to help calm us down, quiet us, to lead, lead a life uh, that is more fulfilling for us as well as the people around us. And, and I do believe through the Contemplative Science Center that particularly is where this is happening. I'm uh, a fairly good friend of David Germano, the uh, religious studies professor who uh, is the head of the uh, Contemplative Sciences Center. And if you haven't gone to the website and taken a look at that, you should. Uh, he is an absolutely amazing, inspiring individual. And, and um on a shoestring at first and now growing budget, we're, we're doing more outreach within UVA as well as to the community, uh, communities beyond. So it's an exciting time for that. Uh, I think UVA, once we uh, just talk about even building a separate building here dedicated to contemplative sciences, uh, we are way out in front. And I think you should be, as, as alums, particularly very proud of that. I, it's an exciting time in that regard for UVA. I have a question. Go ahead. <laughs> I have a question for my colleague on um, Game of Thrones. Do you think the popularity of the program and the books, and I'm, I'm assuming your course must be extremely popular and I'm sure oversubscribed, um, do you think it is in part because that generation who's here now at the university, presuming their traditional age of 18 to 22, um, grew up with Harry Potter? and learn to read and love the films, and now this is a, a more adult version of, of that. That's a great question. Thank you. We discovered this. Well, something that's very funny. Every student thinks that the books were written just for them. <laughs> and so when I say, well, this novel was written in 1996, and they weren't really, I don't think you even thought of in 1996, were you yet? You know, so like, <laughs> you know, they, they, but they have, they do have an inheritance of um, analysis and cultural presence, starting with Harry Potter. And something that we talk about in class is that way that Harry Potter established um, the strategic and cultural value of magic as a representational ethos. Um, and how it helped them to kind of think beyond traditional boxes. It was a way to kind of think about heroism and values and virtues in this kind of larger context. At the same time, in Harry Potter, all the rules that were established by J.K. Rowling are utterly decimated by George R.R. R. Martin. And so they are, it's almost like an inverse of Harry Potter. So the person that you think is not going to die totally dies. You know, and like, wait a minute, he can't really be dead because I'm going to go back and rewatch that episode because that, how'd that happen? Maybe this is a dream. This is a dream. There's a lot of that. This is a dream. Episode nine must be dream because this person is the hero. His picture's on the cover of the disc set. He can't die, you know. So, like, there's a lot of that, a lot of, you know, reading. And they're very careful readers, you know, that these are the kids that would go to the reading parties they would have when the books were released. And, you know, there's a whole genre of um, supernatural mysteries available to them that's allowing them to kind of think beyond the kind of traditional narrative structures. Um, but I do believe Harry Potter helped to lay the groundwork, but they're also doing more sophisticated analysis through the kind of much more strident work of Martin. That's a great question. Thank you.